When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I hear their story of I had this epiphany to change the world at 22. I'm like, that wasn't me. I, I just wanted to be rich because I hated being poor. Because I've coached many billionaires over the past 20 years. If you look at the greatest producers on the planet, these people have one thing in common. They are ridiculously curious. And no matter how much money they make and no matter how much impact they have, they maintain a white belt mentality. One of the keys to epic performance he has a relentless commitment to daily growth. I want the data. I want the input. I want the information. I want the feedback to get to the next version of me, regardless of how it emotionally makes me feel. I'm like driven by that. Without that information, why am I living? What you just said is so important and is, is the like driving force of my life. If we really go back and we look at it, I had a couple good things happen for me um, or to me. One was, at that time, my wife did get frank with me. This is not who you are. This is not what you're about. I don't recognize this person. This is who you are. And I had a other person, to my benefit, pointing out to me the things that were great about me. Now, this is going to sound hokey, but I'm going to give you the big one. And this is why life gives you these great tests. I had a really good friend of mine. I went to lunch, and he said, I don't know who this guy is here in front of me. And he goes, let me ask you a question, honestly. Right now, what are you grateful for? And at the lunch, I said, jack shit, nothing, brother. There's nothing good in my life right now. And I'm not exaggerating this to you when I tell you this, and this is a factual story. As I'm mouthing these words, two people walked in with an older man. Both of them clearly were fighting cancer somehow. Both had lost their hair. One of the ladies had a bonnet on, and they were barely moving in. Both walked by our table and gave me the most warm greeting, the warmest smile as a stranger. And he goes, that's pretty freaking pathetic. You can't find anything in your life to be grateful for right now. And on the drive home, I'm not kidding you, I started to stack gratitude. I started to take inventory. Because if you can find things to be grateful for in that space, man, is your life going to be rich when there really are external things to be grateful for. So my first mechanism out of that space was honestly to stack the things I was grateful for. And I started reinforcing it over and over and over again. And what happens is there's this reticular activating system in our brains, right? And all of a sudden, because that's the messaging I was giving myself, all of a sudden, all these things start to come into my awareness that I'm grateful for. I start to magnetize to myself some people that I needed to find into my life, and that was the next layer. I started to see things to be grateful for, my health, my fitness, people who loved me. And what it did is it changed my state. When I stacked gratitude, I changed what I did in the morning, and I changed what I did in the evening. And so somehow by grabbing control of my morning and by grabbing control of my evening, I got some measure of control over the middle of my day. I was an out of control person back in those days, meaning this, I woke up worried, stressed, fearful, and I immediately start thinking about a bill I had to pay, something that was wrong. And I'm in a state of reaction to begin every, I'm talking within six minutes of waking up, six seconds. Most people listening to this, that's what they do. I said, I gotta grab control of my morning and I set up routines in my morning Maybe they served me, maybe they didn't, but they were things I could deliver on doing for myself. 
And so not only did that give me control over the day, but I started to stack my self-confidence too. And what were some of those things that you grabbed onto? Huge. So, um, and I have a, I'm not pitching this, but I do have audios out on this stuff too that people can go get for free. But Which, my, by the way, are amazing. Thank you, man. Thanks. No, 100%. And I really hope people Thank dive in. Like, your, you. your content is incredible. Thank you. So is yours, which is why I wanted to find you. And that's, I've been, I, for a long time, wanted to be in your presence. So my morning routines are really detailed. Um, I get up and I hydrate. The second thing I do every morning is I do something cold. Something cold. So whether that's I jump in the ocean, because now I live in the ocean, but in those days it was taking a cold shower or splashing some cold water on my face or walking out when it was cold. It shocks our nervous system. Our fight or flight kicks in. We're in a cellular, electric alive state. I obviously do some prayer and meditation every single morning. I've still not touched my telephone. So there's a rule. There's 30 minutes I cannot touch my telephone when I wake up. That's the hardest thing to do in the world and the thing that could benefit you the most because what's ever on that phone, you have to react to. And typically it's stuff that's not great. And so I don't touch that. I, I do my meditation and my prayer and um, I do some stretching. I do some breathing exercises, and then at that point, I allow myself to enter the world after I've got my state controlled. And I work out every morning, except for Sundays. I work out every morning. Talk to me about working out. That's something that completely changed my life. Obviously. And, and every time somebody asks me a question about, you know, how do I, I'm lost, I feel, you know, completely out of control, I don't have confidence, my answer is workout. Me too. So Why? Well, I think everything in our I think everything in our lives starts with our body. If you're a person of faith, you believe that's where your soul is housed, right? And so, it's the you you do emotions. You don't just feel them, you do them. In other words, and you know this from things you've learned in your life, but like joy is an actual action, not just an emotion. We feel a certain joy, there's a certain breathing, a certain movement in our body. Depression and sadness is something we do. We're more hunched over. Our breathing is more shallow, right? And so there's a correlation between the way you move your body and your emotions. They're directly, this is even before we get to dopamine hits and our nervous system being, I'm just telling you that the way you move your body is an emotion. You do emotions. And so when you move your body, you can't be in full workout mode, moving your body, running, walking, jumping jacks, jump rope, and be depressed. They don't go together simultaneously because your body doesn't get the connection. I'm moving like I'm joyful. I'm moving like I'm having sex. I'm moving like I'm happy. These are all joyful states. You can't be depressed simultaneously. So the quickest way to change our behavior, our emotions, and our state is with our body. All right, now let's talk about the, the like end sets, the ones that really burn and really hurt. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've found is, and you've talked about this with entrepreneurship in general, you said it's the, uh, the greatest like self-awareness mechanism yep. where you're going to find out who you are, what you're capable yep. of, how hard you're willing to push. Yep. Most people, though, getting into that position, like it's hard, right? That, that's a sort of a, a bridge too far. Yes. But I love where you're going. when you start in the gym mm -hmm. and it's like, do I do this extra set or not? Do I push myself? Do I do an extra exercise? You going back to confidence is self-trust. Mm -hmm. It's like you begin to learn something about yourself. Oh, boy. I'm stealing that from you. No, please, man. Yeah. And that like legitimately changed my life. And mm -hmm. so when I... When I see guys that are successful entrepreneurs and they're jacked, yep. that never surprises me. Me either. So um, I'm, I, I play these very strange games with myself when I'm at the gym. When I'm working out, I always do one extra rep, one extra set, because it, it's a promise I kept to myself. And here's the biggest thing. It's a pattern. It's a pattern I keep of me. I always do a little extra. I always go the extra inch. And the quickest and easiest place to do it is the gym because I can always grab one more weight, one more set, and it, here's what it does: it shifts your identity. 
All right, talk to me about identity, because that is, so I heard that first from Tony, the yeah. notion, Tony Robbins, the notion that identity drives behavior. And that yep. was one of those like lightning rod moments where I was like, whoa, that's the hook, right? Yes. If I want to change like my behaviors, I need to think of myself in a different way. Correct. You've leveraged identity really powerfully. Yeah. How have you done it? And like, what are some specific moments yeah. where identity came to your rescue? So identity is the governor on our lives. It's the invisible force that no one understands. And once they do understand and get a hold of it, their life can change. And so... Not only if you don't get a hold of this, will these outward conditions of your life keep being exactly the same, but it's, you could behave differently. You could do all the work and out. You could be thinking great thoughts, but you are going to get out of your life. You're going to be the most powerful force in the world, I think, is to be consistent with the concepts, ideas, and worth that you hold for yourself. You will get that out of your life, what you will tolerate. Mm. Okay? The deeper part of that is identity. And so identity is very much like a thermostat sitting on a wall, right? This is important. Once that temperature is set at a certain degree, everything in the world externally can hit it, and you will find a way to get that temperature. So even in this house, let's say it's set at 80 degrees. If we opened up all the doors in cold air, just the worst things in life, the blizzard of life came in, the thermostat will kick the heater on and it will regulate this room back to 80 degrees. The reverse is also true. It's a super hot day. Great things are happening in your life. It's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. If you're at 80 degrees, that internal thermostat will find a way over a window of time to cool your life right back down to 80 degrees again. So the key, the secret key, is to be able to shift that identity. 90, 100, 120. So some of the ways, strategies to do that are, are very simple. One is if I, let's just say financially, you're a 200 degreeer and I'm an 80 degreeer. If I'm in your proximity over and over and over and over again, you will heat my identity up somewhere in between mine and yours to 150 degrees. Same in fitness, same in everything. So the more you can layer in multiple people, the stronger and stronger that force is. So that changes our thermostat through association. It's a huge, 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 huge thing. People say, you are who the five people you hang around. This is why. They adjust your thermostat. That's number one. Second way you can change your identity is through doing short bursts of something in a window of time you've not done them before, and they change the thermostat temperature permanently, almost like a water line in the pool. So if it's a certain in the gym, certain amount in the gym, or a certain amount of phone calls in your business, or a certain amount of appointments, you make a certain amount of money, oftentimes you're never the same again. You've seen this when your own net worth. I've seen it in mine. There became a point where I made a leap in a short window. I was never really the same again. I could go back a little bit, but not back where I was before. So it's activity or successes, achievements in short bursts of time. And then our, obviously our self-confidence impacts identity too, and we've kind of covered that. Those are three quick ways. That's incredible. So walk me through your, your baseball career ends. Mm -hmm. um, I know that your dad and you are now, you said he's your best friend. He's my but best friend. Growing up, yep. alcoholic father, Correct. you said till I think you were 14 or 15, That's right. and then um, they're introducing you constantly as the shy kid who plays baseball, <laughs> baseball falls away, yeah. and now it's like, how do you get out from under, well, I'm the son of uh, you know, somebody that struggled with drugs and alcohol, I'm uh, the kid who was supposed to be great at baseball, and now that's gone. Like, how do you get out from under the weight of that? Yeah, it is weight, too. Um, when I was small, um, I was also really undersized. So it's probably one of the reasons I lift weights. I was always, the, every baseball picture, I'm the kid holding the sign in the front, right? <laughs> so I was small and skinny. Uh, they used to tease me, Eddie Spaghetti, you know, and I'd get bullied at school, and I never retaliated. So I had that mixed with shyness, mixed with chaos in my home, which many people can relate to. And I got to tell you that the shift for me, sports was good for me, because it gave me an out that I finally found something that I was pretty good at. Mm. I think the biggest shift in our lives, the things that makes us the happiest, 
is that when somebody helps us identify our natural giftedness, and when I was a little boy, when I got a little bit older, they pointed out my speed. So it wasn't my lack of size. I was fast. Mm. I was the fast kid, right? I always wanted to be fast kid, and I got confidence in baseball doing that. When I got into business, they said, you know, you're intense. When someone points out a gift about you that you also kind of intuitively know to be true, they're linked to them. You're intense. You're passionate. You won't get outworked. You're relentless. I went, I am those things. And when someone linked those gifts to me winning, now I believed I could win. That's the other way to change identity is when someone can link your giftedness to the victory, mm. you'll believe it. Not like you're great. That's general. That's bullshit. Right. But it's something you know specifically. Like for you right now, you wouldn't brag about them. There's a few things you know. You know what? I am good at these things, right? I've always been good at these things. It's natural for me. And when someone links that to you winning, like for you, for example, you're an unbelievable interviewer. You have this general you, you, you don't need to be the smartest person in the room because you probably are most of the time. And so there's a confidence, no, there's a confidence that allows you to be present when you interview me and just listen that's different than anyone who's interviewed me before. And so that's a natural giftedness for you, which is why there's a part of you that kind of knows, I am pretty, you wouldn't say it, but I am pretty good at this. This is a good program. And so the way we change our identity, the way I changed mine, was by getting in touch with what some of my natural gifts were and then using them in my career, using them in my life. That shifted the weight right off of me. Because the weight was, I suck, I'm shy, I'm small, I have a screwed up family. That's the weight, right? The lifting off of the weight is, these are some gifts God gave me or the universe gave me, or that at least I know I have, and I can spend my life using these gifts. Now I've got hope. Now my identity's changing. Now my life takes a different direction. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. One thing that you have um, talked about, and this is, I think, the thing about your notions on identity that I find really incredible, is that um, in the early days of you building your business, you said, and I quote, I was a dick. Yeah. Um, but you were open to hearing that. Most people can't hear that. So that's a moment where you accept that your identity is something that you're not proud of. Mm. How do you make that change? How do you go in a new direction where somebody, instead of pointing out something beautiful, they're pointing out something ugly? Yeah. Aren't most of the friends that you revere the most the most willing to take coaching from you? 100%. Me too. And so I, I can't tell you why I'm this way, but I do believe it was baseball. I never took it personally when a coach said, you're dropping your shoulder. In other words, because of athletics, when a guy said, spread your right leg out, your legs are too close together, I never thought, I suck, I can't hit. I wanted to know how to hit better. I wanted to know how to throw better. And so for me personally, I'm constantly in a crisis to get to the next version of me. It's not like I'd like to. I wish I only would like to. I probably have a little bit more peace in my life. I am in a crisis to get the next version of me. And so the guy sitting in front of you right now, if I come back in a year and I'm just the same exact person with the same thoughts, same ideas, same ways of delivering them, this was a wasted year of my life, right? So I want to know how to get to that next version of me. And so for those of you that struggle with taking criticism, you got to ask yourself, how important is it to you to grow? Because you were put on earth to grow, to contribute, to serve, to help. You were in your way. And the current version of you is perfect as it stands right now, but it will be inferior next year. You're perfect as you are now, especially you ladies listening to this. There's all this messaging. You're not this. You're not smart enough. Women are too dominant, then they're a diva, right? Or you're not beautiful enough. Ladies, men, you too. You are perfect as you exist right now, but... That version of you isn't sufficient next year. You've got to be crazy, hungry, crisis to get to that next version of you. I want the data. I want the input. I want...
You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. I want the information. I want the feedback to get to the next version of me, regardless of how it emotionally makes me feel. I'm like driven by that. Without that information, why am I living? 
That whole concept, like when people really ask how I've been able to be successful, it's that. It's I'm stoked on who I am today, 100%. Yes. Like I'll give myself the pat on the back before anybody else. But I'm so desperate to get better. Yeah. Like I'm so hungry to know why I'm inadequate right now for what I want, right? Correct. So the way that I sum it up is your past can never be bigger than your future. So it's like once you've done something, right? I built a billion dollar business. But like for me, I'm not looking at that. I want to know what do I need to do and become in order to hit that next thing. Right. That Not only are all achievers doing that, but all happy people do that. In other words, here's how we know you're perfect now. You've produced the external life you have, so you are perfect for that life right now. You are all you need to be right now. But if you want a different life, an improved life, a growing life, right, an increased life, this version of you is inferior to get to that place. And so the reason we have rapport, the reason we like each other is like, I also want to be surrounded by people who are not messaging me, is enough enough? Right. Everything's good, man. Take a break. And I may not want more money. You and I both have a lot of money, right? We'd probably like more, but it's not my driver. I want more peace, more gratitude, more abundance, more contribution, more memories, more experiences, more joy, more love. That will never be enough for me. Put me in the ground if I don't get any more of that stuff, right? I want to grow. I want to see the next place. And so that's the journey. Those of you that have faith, if you believe there's this place you're going to someday, that's because you're always going someplace. So you might as well want to get the information and the equipment to get there. And that's, that's where I want to go. Mm, I love that. How yeah. do you keep your standards so high? And then how do you push them even higher mm. the next year? Uh, I'm really lazy. So if you left <laughs> Not me... the answer yeah, I was I, expecting. I know, I know. And that's, so I want to give you the honest one. Like, <laughs> like, left to my own devices, right? If you just left me like what I'd like to do, I, hey, man, I, was, I have no problem laying around. Um, I like sleeping. Like people think they meet people like you know they're like they're robots, they're other life forms, they're just different than me. No, we build habits, rituals, and disciplines that serve us. Okay. Now, part of those habits, rituals, and disciplines have sort of turned me into a more confident person. There's no question about that. So my standards are mandatory because you get your standards right. And so the reason my standards are set so high is because I don't want to leave it up to my own devices, right? My standard is one more minute on the treadmill. My standard is one more person I can reach that day, one more phone call, one more something. And so for me, I raise them every single year, but the way I get to do it is I link it to my reasons. And so goals are really empty to me. I have a thing on goal setting, but like my big thing is that you show me someone with compelling, emotional, gigantic reasons, I'll show you someone who's changing their standards all day long. So like, Give you one quick version that you've not heard before. One of the reasons I'm relatively fit is not just peak state. I have an uncle in my family that died at 50 years old of a heart attack. He's my godfather, my dad's only brother. I kind of resembled him. And I look like him a lot. So on the way back from his funeral, my reticular activator is on heart attacks. Mm. On the TV screen on the airplane, I'm listening to music, is the Oprah Winfrey show. She's going through a new heart scan. Mm. I've unplugged my headphones, plug it into the airplane one. They're talking about this new scan at Cedar sinai that at that time was new. It could read the plaques in your arteries, the calcifications, without going, you know, really invasively. I scheduled it. I went in. I had a world-class doctor who understood reasons and leverage instead of just prescribing. Because when we coach people, you need to do this, you need to do this. Doctors do it. Take this pill, take this. He understood leverage and reasons. What you do is you take the scan, then you go to lunch, you come back. I took the scan, I went to lunch, I had a burrito, I came back, and I'm in the, when I walk in, I sit down, the doctor comes up, and he says, oh my, I can't believe these arteries are in that young body. Uh. 
got my attention. We walk back in, we sit down. He could still go, you need Crestor, eat clean, get out of here. Isn't that what an average doctor does, right? No, wired me with huge reasons. He goes, let me ask you a question. Uh, I heard your wife's pregnant. You have, I said, yeah, I have a son. And he says, do you want to be there when he graduates from high school to be there for that day? I said, yes, sir, yeah. He goes, your wife's pregnant. What do you have? And I said, a daughter. This is where you get a dad. He goes, she was six months pregnant. He goes, do you, um, would you like to walk her down the aisle on her wedding day, or are you okay that it's some other man? I went, what the fuck is on this scan, right? Like, and he goes, I want to be very clear with you. If you keep going down the road you're going, there'll be some other man with your son at graduation high school, and a stranger's walking your daughter down the aisle. It's not even born yet on her wedding day. And I went, boom. And he goes, but if you do exactly what I tell you to do, you'll be there. And so to this day, brother, there are mornings when I wake up. Not every morning. I don't want to go to the gym. I go, Bella's wedding. Bella's wedding. Bella's wedding. So my standards are high because of my big old reasons. Other dudes may miss the gym that day because they're not going to miss their daughter's wedding if they don't go. But I've convinced myself I will. I get emotional. I've convinced myself I'll miss my daughter's wedding. So I will get my ass out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I will get to that gym because my reasons are bigger, so my standards are higher. So talk to me about the time that your dad saw a guy mowing your lawn for you. That, that was <laughs> you heard that, that, one. that really showed the dichotomy between the, the new way that you were trying to think yep. and then the old way that you'd been brought up to think um, and the different results that each path Yeah, to. really great question. So um, I was probably 19 or 20 years old. And by then, uh, I had already, um, I was working in a collision shop. I'd buy wrecked cars, fix them, and sell them. And I had my first apartment house by then. I bought an old, rundown house. I got it for no money down. And I built, I built nine apartments in it. And I'd build one apartment, and I'd live in it while I remodeled it. So I'd work on cars during the day. At night, I'd work on this first apartment. I'd get it done. And then as soon as it was done and it looked nice, I'd rent it, and I'd move into the crappy one and, and rebuild it. And I got all nine done. And I, I realized at a young age that, at that time, I was starting my real estate career, and by the time it was all rented, it was doing really well. It was cash flowing really well. My dad, always working hard and born during the Depression, was always like, you know, don't borrow money. If you could do it yourself, don't dare hire anybody else. And I knew it was fundamentally flawed because it wasn't working for him. So I used to spend all day Saturdays in this apartment house. I had a monster lawn. I'd weed whack all day. I'd mow the lawn. And one day it just hit me. I said, what my dad thinks is wrong, like doing this, during this time, this seven hours of mowing, I could pay the neighbor 50 bucks to do it and I could go fix one more car or find another piece of real estate or flip a car and sell it for a profit and I could make maybe a couple grand today. My ROI would be monstrous. So the first time, literally the first week, my, the kid's mowing my lawn, my dad pulls in the driveway and he sees and he gets out and he goes, you're gonna pay someone to mow your lawn? This is, you got bigger than your britches, this is it for you. And I remember just sitting there and I hated, my dad could be confrontational sometime and he got so mad at me, like furiously mad. He got in his car, and, he, and he, it was a gravel driveway. And he hit the gas so hard, it sprayed rocks all over my car, like dented the whole side of my car. Ding, 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 ding. And he left pissed. And I remember just sitting there. And it was really a moment in my life. And I'm like, wow, his beliefs are so strong. And if you could do it yourself, you should do it. That it's compromised him and having the ability you know, to have more freedom, have more joy. And I realized at that moment, it actually it didn't make me want to fire the kid that was mowing my lawn and anchored in the fact that, wow, this is what I need to do more of. And I think I've been on a journey. I still, I, you're probably the same way. I still, on a quarterly basis, I still look through everything I do. And it, you know, it's like an onion and keep peeling away the onion of what you shouldn't do. And I, and I still look on like, what can I have an ROI on? What can I make 
several thousand dollars an hour, whatever the number is, and pay someone to do it. So that was, that was a big tipping point in my life because I started realizing that I didn't have to get, I didn't have to do things that I could get a better ROI on. And then it, it evolved even more so into stop doing things I sucked at because the world and even school teaches you, teaches us in so many ways to, 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 you know, work on our weaknesses, to get stronger. And um, I think that's a huge flaw. I think we just get great at what we're good at. We only need to be good at one or two things and we can make an impact on the world. How do people find those things? Well, you know, I, I've been doing it for so long time that I think the best way, is, as, as archaic as this might sound, is I literally will jot down now and I'll tell people whether I'm in a, a high-end mastermind where people paid 100 grand to be in a room or they paid 90 bucks in a room. I'll tell the same people is, Take a journal, do it in your phone in, mem- in the notes or do it on a, in your journal or on a pad and write down the stuff you do on a daily basis, hour by hour, and then go through it and literally look at the stuff as, as simple as it sounds. Look at the stuff and say, is everything on this list drive me towards being a better version of myself or more wealth if that's what you want or being a better dad is what I obsess on or being a better family man or being more conscious, being more spiritual? Like, does it help God, the universe, or a bigger version of me? And if it doesn't, should it really be something that's on my list? And if it has to be done, can someone else do it? Can I delegate it? Can I automate it? Or can I just eliminate it? And, and I literally do that practice at least once a quarter for the last 10 years. Because um, we must. Because sometimes we've, we evolve, we change. And things that used to light us up or used to be important aren't anymore. Um, and then the other thing too is there's a, there's a balance between you know, just making money or, or furthering your business and also knowing internally what your definition of success is. Um, you know, it, there might be something that makes you a lot of money, but it robs your soul. So there's that balance. And I think that doesn't happen. Oh, that doesn't happen in your 20s. And maybe not in your 30s. At least it didn't for me. I was just fighting to be successful in my 20s and 30s. But at this phase, I wish someone would have grabbed me at 25 and said, you're going to make all the money you want. You'll have all the success you want. Make sure your soul is aligned with that money. Um, And every time, I don't know about you, every time I align my values, my soul, my purpose, whatever it is you want to call it, with uh, my businesses or my profits, they always soar without having to obsess on the, you know, on the, on the numbers. What you just said is so important and is, is the like driving force of my life. Um, like you, I chase money first and foremost. That was it. I wanted to get rich, period. Yeah, when people, when people, I hear their story of I had this epiphany to change the world at 22, I'm like, that wasn't me. I, I just wanted to be rich because I hated being poor. I wanted to take care of my mom. I could lie. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I get it. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com.
One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Man, not at all. And I, I really hope people are hearing what you're saying because it's like everything that I say beyond like align the way that you generate your wealth with what you love doing is like trappings to try to point you back at that. Because one, you'll be far more extraordinary because you care enough about it to invest the time to get great. Two, it's the thing that is going to keep you going when it gets really hard is going to be that you believe in what you're doing, that you're you're passionate about it. It gives you more energy than it takes. And if you don't have that, you're in real trouble. Now, I'll say that some of that, though, is a bit advanced class. It's getting into like you're talking about optimizing, which is so critical Unless you're so early in your development that Absolutely. you're like your dad, you know, peeling yep. gravel. So what I want to know is you understand the psychology of people and their story and how they get trapped really well. Talk to me about how people can get control of that story. You talk about um, monitoring your thoughts, being mm-hmm. aware of what you're thinking, being aware of the story you're telling yourself. You're right. And what stands between us and where we want to go is never what we think it is. It's not the economy, it's not the president, it's not that somebody already dominated the health food industry or dominated Facebook advertising or dominated TV advertising or there's no room left. It's never that. It's always the story we tell ourselves on why we can't achieve that. And and if, if I wanted to boil it down, I would just say, what is your biggest why? What's your biggest goal that you would love? If it was a year from now and we were sitting here, you're watching this and it was a year later, and it was the best year of your life, what would be the biggest thing that would have changed in your life? From money, income, family, love, intimacy, being a better dad, mom, whatever. Whatever that is, if you say to yourself, I would love that goal. Like I'd love to have my company doing a million dollars a year in net profit so I could have freedom for my family. Then just say but. And whatever that but is, is usually your story. It's like, I would love my company to be doing a million dollars yet, but I live in a smaller town and there's just not enough people to do it. Or the internet's so saturated, there's no room to advertise on Facebook anymore because everybody and their brother's on. Whatever that story is, is usually your story and that's the results you get. And that story is the, the thing, the thing standing between you and your next level. And, and I know people are watching right now going, oh, Dean, that's nice. You guys got money now, so it's easy. I don't have any money. I don't have a partner. I don't have any business experience. Uh, you know, this economy's not right for what we do. And... And, you know, where there's, where there's, you know, that old saying, where there's a will, there's a way. If that, if your story is that, that's what you'll continue to get. So what I would say is, if I was going to boil it down, is 
find what that story is. Now to you, you might be saying, Dean, you're saying it's a belief, it's reality. And maybe it's phase three, but reality is nothing more than our perception of a situation, right? We all know that. You've read that about it, you've watched it on Tom's show, everybody has said it, but maybe it's the first time you actually think about it, that that reality you think is holding you back is really just the story. So there's two things I say, is go find somebody else with that same story. Like go look at your, your, your evolution, where you were on your couch, no money, right? Go look at Richard Branson's story, look at Tony Robbins' story, look at you know, John Paul DiGiorgio or all the amazing books Everybody, I've read every book in there. That's amazing, the people that you've got to interview and meet. But read all those stories and realize that, first of all, that story you have is probably a lie, right? So if you can find proof, like leverage, that it's a lie, that's one thing. But then the, the one that would get me is I love aspiration. I love to look and say, look what you did, man. I, I, I want to get there. If he did it, I can do it. But sometimes you need the pain as well. So what I like to do is I like to think, Take that story and think it's five years from now and think it's 10 years from now and you're still in the same exact spot you are now. You're still worried. You still have envy. You still want more. You desire more. You want to take care of your family. You want to provide more. And think that that story, those two sentences, is the thing holding you back. Do you really want to give that story that much power? And then think it's 10 years from now and that story is still done. And all of a sudden, it like for me, I think... Am I going to let that story stop me? I brought my son with me today. Am I going to stop from giving him the opportunities that I didn't? I'm not raising, I have two children. I'm not raising entitled kids. I want to give him massive opportunity. I don't want to leave him a trust fund. I'm going to leave him massive opportunity and train him. I'm not going to let any story get in the way of me being that dad. And if a story pops up that says, hey, I can't make baseball this week because of this, I'll change the damn story. I'll fist fight with that story. And I'll look at the pain I'll have if I keep that story. So I love the aspirational part of this story will stop me from my new life. But I also like, are you going to let that story screw you around for the next 5, 10, 15 years? I mean, man, we're, we're going to be 90 laying in a, in, a, in a bed looking up like before we know it. And do you want to think I squeezed all I could out of life or did I let just beliefs that other people gave me hold me back? Now let's say that they do that. They're looking back. They understand what they would have to change yep. to really get, you know, so they're at a future point thinking, okay, this is the best year of my life. They look back. They understand what they have to do to actually yep. make that come true. They identify a limiting belief. Yep. They get the butt and then they, oh, okay, that cool. I got yep. it. I'm owning that story yep. unintentionally. Now, how do they start writing a new story without feeling yeah. like they're lying to themselves? Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. So in 10th grade, I decided I wasn't going to college. Wasn't that smart. I had dyslexia. Family didn't have money. None of my family ever went to college. I just wanted out of school. So my dad owned a collision shop. Uh, it was called uh, Paul Graziosi Auto Body. And uh, he never made more than 30 grand a year. I told you he worked really hard, but not profitable, just worked hard. So my dad said, if you're not going to go to college... I'll make you a 25% partner in the collision shop in 11th grade if you can get out by 11 o'clock. So 11 o'clock, I start, 11th and 12th grade, I took like ceramic, gym, and, and, and English, and I was out, and I was at the collision shop. So in 11th grade, in this little town I grew up of, of 8,000 people, a little town called Marlboro, New York, the collision shop sign, he switched it, and it became Paul and Dean Auto Body. And I'm like, that was huge for me. And I, I worked, I, I worked like my dad did. I, were, I hustled, I went there at 11 o'clock, I worked every night. And my dad was like, hey, our business is doing better because of you, I was better with the clients. I was better, I, I brought more people in, I hustled. So now all my friends are going off to college or going into what they're doing, like, you're not going to college? I'm like, no, I got this collision shop. Like, 
I felt like a little sense of pride, like I was making movement. And by then I was giving my mom some money, I was giving my grandmother some money, and, uh, and had this evolution, I felt good. So about two years out of high school, my dad goes through his fourth divorce, and it hits him really hard. And um, it hit him so hard that he checked out. And he said, hey, I'm not going back to the collision shop, I'm not paying the rent, it's done. And I was like, I, at that phase of my life, Tom, I felt, I was embarrassed more than anything. Like, I remember that point, because I was like, I'm not going to college, but I own Paul and Dean Auto Body with my dad. And it was like, in my head, not realizing I'm 20 nothing, I'm like, life's over. I have no money in the bank. Life is just screwed. And I started telling myself that story. And I lost the spark I had had since I was about 12. Like, since 12, I'm like, I'm not that smart, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. And I lost it. And I'm going to friends like, hey, if your dad or anybody you know needs a car fix, I'm doing it out of my garage. And I know my friends are like, ah. And then all of a sudden, so this is what I'll share with you. Maybe you've had a story worse than that or maybe a story not as bad as that. But I remember being in there and saying to myself like, what the hell am I doing telling myself this crap? Like if I feel this way, this is what I'm gonna be my dad. And I remember at that moment I changed the story and I started thinking to myself, and it didn't happen overnight, so this is what I want to encourage you. When you find the bad story, find a way to just reverse the whole thing. I'm like, no, no, no. Because I don't have a college degree, I'm going to fight and I'm going to do this. Because I was always small, I'm going to do this. Because I have no money, I'm going to do this. Because my friends think I can't, I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden, I started changing this story, not overnight, but over weeks, it became my empowering story. I wasn't looking at, at a deficit. I'm like, screw you guys. You think I'm not going to do this because I don't have what you have? I'm going to blow right past you, whether that's a good thought or not. At the time, it served me. That's not how I look at things now, but at the time, it served me. Some of it was, and I was able to reverse that story, and that story got me through, just like what got you from going to the couch, getting change to where you've, what you've created. It's unbelievable the impact you've made on the world. But if we had the wrong story, if we had the wrong beliefs, we're screwed before we start. I'm glad that we went down this road because... If one person watching today just says, screw this old story, and you spent the time to make that an empowering story, then I think the game changes forever. Do you have people that ask you like, hey, I'm rewriting my story, but it doesn't feel real. What advice do mm -hmm. you have for them? Um, rewriting my story and it doesn't feel real. Of course it doesn't feel real because you've been living the old story so long. All change is, is uh, you know, all change freaks people out whether they believe that they like change or not and I think not only been telling yourself the story so long is when you tell yourself a bad story we look for things right, did you ever did you ever have something bug you like everybody does and you google it and you find all the negative stuff like oh my god I got I got cancer I have I have, you know it's I have a tumor right it's the same thing with with our insides right when we have a story that's holding us back we find social proof all around us that tells us it's the truth, right? You talk to your aunt who says, yeah, that, hey, listen, rich people get to do those things. We don't. You just play it safe. And all of a sudden, subconsciously, you're like, oh, maybe that story's right. So you have all these years of sometimes years, months, weeks, whatever it is. You have the story, and then you only collect the data that supports the story so your subconscious can be okay with playing small. What I love in, in your real life story is that it wasn't like you were saying, oh, this epiphany, I look up, the stars align. It was, okay, you have the trouble with your dad and his um, most recent divorce. Yeah. Looks like everything's collapsing. You get it back. It's going in the right direction. We're winning again. This is incredible. Yeah. 
And then you make a deal to sell your car flipping business. Yeah. And then that goes to hell. Yeah. And in that moment, the the story comes rushing back of maybe everybody was right. Maybe I wasn't smart enough. Absolutely. And so that, in fact, you just posted this on your Instagram. I thought it was so brilliant. It was the life of an entrepreneur. And it showed this like, I'm winning everything. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I screwed up shit. I really yeah. suck. Oh, I'm winning again. Yeah, I've got this figure. And it just like this back and forth, back and forth. How did you, when you thought, oh, I've overcome this, I've got the empowering story, and then it all falls apart again, the yep. inner villain, as you call it, like starts speaking up. How did you deal with it the second time around? Was it easier? Was it harder? I think it was harder. It was harder because it was bigger. Because, so the story, just so you said, I, I, I went, I, got, I, I ended up, after that, I worked in, in that little garage, I was working on one car, my story changed, I started getting powered, two cars, three cars. I went to the, the woman who owned the collision shop my dad had rented for her, Mrs. Mary Lopresti. She was a great old lady, uh, elderly lady, and we became friends, and she sold me the collision shop with no money down. Wow. So I bought the collision shop my dad lost. I named it Dean Collision Center. <laughs> I took the Paul off. I was mad at my dad. So I, <laughs> I named it Dean Collision Center. I bought it, and I started, and I got Enterprise Rent-A-Car Account. I got Hertz Rent-A-Car Account. We went from this rinky-dink collision shop to a successful collision shop. Started buying and flipping more houses. And then in the late 90s, I wanted to teach people how I made money with cars. I used to wholesale cars. If you ever went and traded in a car and they give you a low price, I'd run ads in the classified, said, hey, if you're getting a low offer, uh, call me, I'll sell your car for you. And then I'd match buyers and sellers and make money in the middle. So I created a course called Motor Millions and I'd watch Tony Robbins on infomercials and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I put all the money I had together, hit credit cards, and I filmed my first infomercial in 1999. And I sold the course called Motor Millions and uh, went on TV and was literally running Motor Millions, my education business, out of the collision shop. Like I had three phones on the desk and, oh no, that's the, that's the Motor Millions phone. And, uh, and uh, we ramped up and I had no idea what I was doing. I knocked on a lot of doors and finally rolled out on TV and probably got to a $10 million a year company, you know, the trials and error of figuring it out, right? A lot of mistakes because I had no idea what I was doing. And I was about three years into that and I wanted to teach everybody real estate. And I had somebody come in and offer to buy Motor Millions. Uh, and they, uh, they took the company and came in like, hey, you're running like a mom and pop. We're going to turn it into a company. And they blew the company up. I mean, like in nine months, like as fast as you could blow a company up, they blew it up. And, uh, and I remember when they were making all these changes, and I remember thinking, well, I'm not that smart. These guys are smarter than me. So they're probably doing it right, even though it didn't feel right. So long story short, the company went belly up. But my name was attached to it. And they didn't pay refunds for people who bought my courses and stuff. So I went to court and literally took back the debt. And then I, over the next two years, I paid off 100% of the people who had bought, even though they bought through the company who bought it. My bills were ridiculous and all of a sudden cash flow was shut off immediately. And I'm fighting to take back a dead company. Like it was like I gave them a, a thoroughbred that was ready to grow and they broke its legs and gave it back to me. And I had to fight and pay to take it back then pay it off. And, and I thought I was gonna lose it. And, and those limiting beliefs at a different level came back and said, Ah, see, you didn't go to college. You didn't study enough. You weren't smart enough to own a $10 million a year company. You weren't smart enough to negotiate right. What do you think you're doing? Get this paid off. Go back, to, literally, I was thinking, go back to Marlboro. Go back to just real estate, the car business. You can make yourself 300 grand a year. Like, literally, those beliefs came in all over again. And I would, I would bet to say what did it for me then was two things is I started thinking back of all the things that I went through. And it was just as painful when I was broke, getting my first deal done. Get broke, living in, in a bathroom, or broke in that garage, going to the collision shop. And I realized that 
it doesn't matter how many zeros are at the end or how big your company is. The pain is still there. And if you have the ability to get through a death, get through a hard time, get through something horrible in your life, you have the same ability, and you probably agree this, when your company's got, you know, three zeros or nine zeros or ten zeros, it does, like, the, the stress and the worry is almost the same if you look back. It's just you're just handling bigger problems. And I think, I think, I mean, you want to upgrade your life, upgrade your problems, right? But, but, I think that's what got me through is I, I literally looked back and said, wow, I thought I was dead then. I wasn't. I thought I wasn't going to make it there. I did. And I started this mantra. If I can get through this shit, I can get through anything. And I remember I would just walk and I would say it. Oh, if I can get through this, I can get through anything. This is my time. This is my purpose. This is my calling. I went from the worst time of my life to be in, being empowered and motivated and the energy just, I took my team with me. They felt the energy, they felt the motivation and, and we just blew right through to another level. One of the lines from right out of the 5am club is one of the DNAs of legendary is longevity. So if you look at the Picassos, the Jean-Michel Basquiat, you look at the great uh, sports champions, you look at the great history makers, they were much better at energy management than time management. And so we're in a war against distraction right now, and what we really have to do is optimize our energy. How do I do it? Well, I mean, I get to the morning routine, which, which the whole book is based on. But it's really quite powerful because if you start your day with sweaty exercise, you're actually going to activate a pharmacy of mastery that exists in every human brain. I know you love the neuroscience. You're going to release BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That's going to actually accelerate your processing. It's actually going to repair brain cells that have been damaged by stress. You're going to release the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is the, the fire neurotransmitter, which we all need as entrepreneurs and business builders and, and servants of humanity. Um, cortisol, the fear hormone is highest in the morning, so exercising first thing in the morning is going to reduce that. I'm getting into my 20-20-20 formula, but I mention it because it is a way to maximize your energy. So talk to us about the 2020-20. I mean, you sort of um, started it there with the, the sweaty exercise, but what's the rest of that formula, which is pretty powerful? Sure. So the new book is all about rising at 5 a.m. And that's because if you look at the great creatives and the great saints and the great humanitarians and the great titans of industry, many of them got up at 5 a.m. Even right now, you've got Tim Cook and you've got Howard Schultz and it goes on and on. Before the sun rises is the time of least distraction. Before the sun rises where you can build intimacy and fluency with what you want to stand for in your day. Before the sun rises, the luxury and tranquility of the early morning hours, you can do that deep inner work that will allow you to go out in the world and, and play at your best. So what the 2020-20 formula is is simply this. There's three pockets. The first pocket is move, 5 to 5.20. And you get into the sweaty exercise because, like I mentioned, it releases uh, neurotransmitters, it uh, reduces the cortisol, increases your metabolic rate, which gives you more energy. So now, and serotonin as well, which gives you joy. So now it's 520. Fundamentally, you feel different. You have energy. Your state is strong. You've got a fire in your belly, and you've accelerated your focus. 520 to 540 is the second pocket of the 2020-20 formula, which is reflect. 
We live in a world where a lot of people are busy being busy, but what's the point of being busy around climbing the wrong Mount Everests? And so clarity is one of the DNAs of mastery. You know this. If you talk to the titans of industry and you talk to the people really getting traction around their ambition, these are people who have a monomaniacal focus on the few things that matter. They have an obsession bordering on a possession around the few priorities they want to build their life around. And so 520 to, to uh, 540, the second pocket, you write in a journal, you meditate, you visualize, you do what I call in the book a blueprint for a beautiful day. Um, or you just sit in solitude and you think and you ponder and you reflect. And then the final pocket is 5.40 to 6 o'clock and this is the victory hour. Um, the final pocket is grow. But if you look at the greatest billionaires, I've coached many billionaires over the past 20 years. If you look at the greatest producers on the planet, these people have one thing in common. They are ridiculously curious. And no matter how much money they make and no matter how much impact they have, they maintain a white belt mentality. One of the keys to epic performance is a relentless commitment to daily growth. So that's the 20-20-20 formula that the 5 a.m. method is built around. And the premise is basically this. As you begin your day, so you handcraft the rest of your day. And if you have consistently great days, you're going to have consistently great weeks, quarters, year, and a lifetime. So your days are life in miniature, and you got to get those mornings calibrated if you really want to win. When you were talking about the, obs the obsession that borders on possession, which I like a lot and I think is the thing that's missing from a lot of people's lives. In fact, I'll say that I don't think people know how to want. And I don't think they know how to turn a want into a crushing need. And so there's people have this vague sense that they want something, but they don't know how to, to really cultivate that. How do you help people with that? How do you help them light themselves on fire and really commit to something? Tom, I actually believe we are built to want. The very nature of being a human being is we are built to progress. We know that the human brain craves novelty. And we are most alive, we have the most energy, we are most intimate with our best selves when we're progressing towards our mighty mission. So I think we all want. I think what's happened on the planet right now is there's been a great seduction and a great brainwashing. When we are kids, we want. We want to be astronauts. We want to be billionaires. We want to be history makers. We want to do all our dreams. And then, and, and we stand in awe and wonder and we're full of curiosity, and we're loving, and we're passionate, and we're strong. We're not afraid to be ourselves. But as we leave the perfection of childhood, the hypnosis and the brainwashing begins. Our well-intentioned parents say, oh, you want to be an astronaut? You want to start a business when you grow up? You want to paint like Jean-Michel Basquiat? Be reasonable. And George Bernard Shaw said it better than I ever could. He said, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in adapting the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. So that's our nature, but our parents give us limitation based on their limited psychology and their emotional patterns that they learn from their parents. Then we go to school and we're taught to live in a box, think in a box, dress like everyone else. Don't sing too loudly, don't dream too big, don't be too passionate. And then our peers do the same thing to us. And then society says, oh, genius is the realm of genetics, not everyday people, which has been 
dismissed by some very good science. You know, I mean, the 10,000 hour rule that we all know from a Florida State University professor, Anders Ericsson, it just confirms so much. So I do think we all want. I think what's happened is we've, as we've left who we truly are, we've contracted. And now it's all about staying safe in the world versus going out there and letting our brilliant, our primal genius shine. And a lot of people just have stuffed that pain of disappointment and their doubt really deep inside. And they just um, are addicted to distraction and escapes because they don't want to deal with their potential that they've denied. Take us back. So you um, start out as an attorney, you're a litigator and you write your first book, you self-publish it, print it at Kinko's, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, how do you then take that leap? Like obviously you were beginning to cultivate that, um, the, the traits of the unreasonable man, or maybe it was a process of unlearning, um, but how did you do that? How did you buck all of that and do something new? Uh, Self-growth. You know, we live in a world that suggests the doorway to success swings outward. If you build the business, if you get the jet, if you get the money, if you get the cars, if you get the beautiful spouse, then you're going to be happy. What I believe, and there's a model in the 5AM Club that I think is a very disruptive model, but it's a transformational model. And it's called the Four Interior Empires. And it's not just mindset, it's mindset, heart set, health set, and soul set. And we can talk about it if you like. But I worked on those Four Interior Empires when I was a very unhappy litigation lawyer. Like, I'd made money, I was successful, I had two law degrees, and yet I'd wake up every morning, Tom, and I'd go into the bathroom mirror and I'd look at myself and I was a completely empty person. And nothing is more expensive than losing your joy and your peace of mind. And so what I did was I started working on myself. You know, I worked on my mindset and I read all the books and I went to the courses, but that's only your psychology. And I think that's one of the missing links in our field, which is everyone's talking about mindset, but mindset is just your belief system. It's just your psychology. It's, it's very important, but that's 25% of the personal mastery equation I believe the second piece is your heart set, and I worked on that. Purifying your heart, that's your emotionality, not just your psychology. You're never gonna make history dominate your domain and handcraft a world-class life if you've got a great psychology, but you're carrying the pain and sadness, disappointment and trauma of the past. So I worked on my heart set, but that's only the second interior empire. The third interior empire, your health set. Don't die. If you want to change the world, like dead people don't change the world. So health set, biohacking. There's a whole chapter on recovery and the essentialness of sleep. So really getting your health set right, but there's a fourth interior empire that I worked on that allowed me to go out in the world and, and pursue my, my magic. And it's a little dangerous for me to share because I know how many business people you know, follow you and how many entrepreneurs, but I'm gonna share it because it's my truth. So it's not just mindset and it's not just heart set and it's not just health set, it's soul set. And soul set has nothing to do with religion. Soul set is about working on your character. So you reaccess your nobility and your bravery and your authenticity and your decency. And you find a cause that's larger than your life. So when you go out in the world every single morning, 
People might ridicule you because every genius is ridiculed before they're revered. People might throw stones at you, but you use them to build monuments of mastery. People might not understand you because any disruptor is going to be misunderstood. And even if you're an army of one, a Galileo or a Steve Jobs or a Phil Knight, you continue at all costs. So those four interior empires that I go into detail in in the book give you a fiery inner core of warriorship and leadership that allow you to go out in the world and do amazing things. But it all starts with who you are because you'll never rise any higher than what's going on within you. All right, I, we really have to talk about the, the soul set and the heart set. I think those are gonna be the ones that are least familiar to people. So. Um, in the soul set, let's just dive into the, the most maybe controversial one, but I, I actually think people are gonna resonate with this. Um, the thing that you talked about in the book that, that really hit me is this notion of being braver, of finding ways to get braver. And I don't know, it was one of those where you're kind of like trying to guess what the person is gonna say, and I was so struck by that one. Um, how do we practice getting braver? What does it mean to be braver? And then how does that end up being useful for us? What what terrifies you most go directly there. Because discomfort is simply growth in wolf's clothing. Um, the, yeah, I mean, the last chapter is, uh, I don't wanna to give too much away, but it's, it's um, an experience I lived. You know, it's, it's Nelson Mandela's prison cell. Mm. Have you been to Robben Island? I haven't, but I am beyond obsessed with Nelson Mandela, so I know the story okay. very well. You know, I, I, I'd encourage you to go mm. because standing in that, in that cell, feeling the sensations will transform you at a soul level as well as heart set level. So how do we become more brave? Well, I went over to um, Nelson Mandela's prison cell and I stood there and I was shocked. He didn't even have a bed and he was in there for 18 years. Then I went over to the limestone quarry and I saw where Nelson Mandela spent 10 years chipping away at stone to break his spirit because they threw the stones away. And then I saw the showers where this elderly statesman would shower while the young guards would laugh at him. And then in the book I talk about a true fact where he was asked on Robben Island to dig a grave and he, he, he got in the grave thinking he was going to die and the prison guards urinated on him. And my point is simply this, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison after 27 years of total incarceration, the, he invited the prosecutor who was seeking the death penalty to dinner. And he invited the prison guard who kept him in prison for 18 years on Robben Island to his inauguration as president of South Africa. And he was asked, why would you do that? And he said, because if I didn't, I'd still be in prison. And my point is to lead and to become a great hero or an everyday hero. The doorway is through embracing our suffering and doing difficult things. I think pleasure has been promoted too much in our society. Like no great titan of industry, no legendary cellist, no great athlete, you know. The great ones all understand that suffering is the price of greatness. So how do we become braver? You, you, you do the difficult things that you don't feel like doing, but you know have the payoff. 
Yeah, the hard set. That's a. It's really interesting. And what I liked about it was the way that you talk about. You know, we all have this accumulation of trauma, oftentimes from when we're younger. How do you help people process through that? Like how you've worked with some really high performers. How have you helped them tap into that? And then more importantly, how do you help them process through that? Is it about reframing the event? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. Journaling is profound. Do you journal? I have journaled. To say that I do journal would be a lie. You're going to love journaling. Like I I do it almost every day. I I had... um, I had a show this morning, and then I had to set my intentions for you and all your global followers or, or viewers. And so I went back to my hotel room. I took a cold shower. <laughs> you know, I've been fasting a lot, so we can get into fasting because I fasted as I wrote the nice. Five sure, Am Club, sure. and that helped massively. And then I pulled out my journal and I sat on my terrace, and I literally started writing about my intentions for impact theory. And so. How do, you, how do you move through pain? You journal. Um, if you're going through heartbreak, I mean, we've all experienced heartbreak. What we do is often we repress it because we're not given the tools to process through it. You, you lose a business, people repress it. Someone has a divorce or an illness, oh, mindset, reframe it, psychology. You're swallowing pain, you're swallowing sadness, you're swallowing anger. We're built to feel, right? So writing in a journal, just getting it out. There's actually something in the 5M Club called the journaling deconstruction because it's not just processing through pain. But to answer your question, that trauma of heart set, you write in a journal, you get it out of your system. Guess what? You don't bring passive aggressive into the workplace. You don't bring sadness or low vibe into the workplace. You're you're full of your true self in terms of your heart set, which is gratitude, love, appreciation. You know what that does for a business. You know what that does for a human life. So if you're going through a painful time, write that out. Um, Almost every day I write gratitude. But I love great restaurants. And so I'll take the business card, and the next morning I pull out my little glue stick, and I glue the business card into my journal and I relive the experience. Oh, I had dinner with so-and-so. Here's what I learned, I deconstruct it. With better awareness, we'll make better choices. Better daily choices, better daily results. Imagine journaling like this every single day. You're gonna have such acute awareness about when you're at your best, what the great ones do, how to live a life, what you wanna stand for, what your core values are. You walk out in the world and you're just radiating possibility in a world where people are addicted to distraction and numbed out. Mm. You've brought up distraction before and I know you talk a lot about it in the book. How do we, in this world where it's, Algorithms are literally being constructed to make sure that they get our attention with as much frequency as possible. How do you talk to people about eliminating that? How do you do it in your own life? How do you create that space? How much time do you allocate to that that real isolation? Mm. Yeah, the brain tattoo in the book is an addiction to distraction is the death of your creative production. Mm. Your f- People's phones are costing them their fortune. So how do I do it? One of the rituals in the book is the tight bubble of total focus. It's, it's based on Edison's Menlo Park. Um, there's a great documentary on what he did, but essentially him and his band of co-geniuses would 
leave the world, go up to this hill to Menlo Park, where they could get into flow state, to give credit where it's due, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi of University of Chicago came up with that term, flow, when we're at our absolute best doing magical things in our performance. But that only comes when we get away from the world. So you can play with your phone, or you can be monomaniacally focused on being a history maker and legendary. You don't get to do both. And so building periods of time in that tight bubble of total focus where you leave your phone in another room, where you train your team, or if you don't have a team, you just don't have any distractions, and you ask yourself, what is the one thing I could do that would allow me to go out in the world and, and bring my magic to the world? The human brain has a phenomenon called transient hypofrontality. The neocortex, as you know, it's the, the seat of thinking. It's our monkey mind, it's all the chattering, it's the stuff that says, Tom, you can't do it, Robin, you can't do it. What would they think? What if I fail? What if I get laughed at? That's all the neocortex, it's the crown jewel of brain development. Not our primitive brain, crown jewel. But there's no genius in there. And here's what I mean. When we get away from distraction, and we find our Menlo Park, or we go work in a quiet place, and we get lost. The neocortex actually shuts down. That's why it's called transient hypofrontality. For a short period of time, our thinking shuts down. The whole model is in the book. And we actually go from brain waves at beta, down to alpha, down to theta, and maybe even delta. And we stop thinking and we go into flow. In other words, the advanced minds of the world, the great geniuses, Galileo, Da Vinci, Steve Jobs, they weren't in the neocortex. They got away from the world for bursts of time, which allowed them to access the human capability we all have to get into flow state and access insights that they went out in the world and then executed on with a world-class team, which totally changed the game. I know that you've talked about clarity is super important. Carrots, talk to us about those two things, which I think are both pretty powerful. Yeah, Tom, I, I would say questions. You know, like right now, uh, uh, I, 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 I'm more curious about people that I can't even help myself. I'm asking you questions like, hey, you know, uh, how come you don't have any kids? We don't have any kids. Why don't you have any kids? Well, because, you know, we decided six years ago we're not going to have any kids. Well, how, did, how did you know that? Well, we got married 17 years ago. Well, we've been together for 20 years. And my wife, this was a decision, an emotional decision or a logical decision. I think it was a logical decision because it was finally a way to get in, you know, fulfillment. What you and your wife did is what very few people do. And the whole purpose is sitting down and asking the questions. What if I get asked a question that I don't have the answer to? One of the scariest things about life is a question. The, the, the scary question can shake a soul up because no one's asked that question from you. So for me, the transition for somebody to want to change it and get clarity is actually asking questions. If you don't ask the questions of what you want to do next, the world is going to put you in the box on what you have to do next because they're determining who you need to be. Mm -hmm. And you are rising up to their expectations because you're not asking the questions yourself. So clarity to me is stemmed from you being able to sit down and ask those tough questions that piss you off, that irritate you, that make you emotional, that you cry over, that you reflect, that makes you want to do research, that makes you follow up, that makes you sit down and say, I don't really know. I've never thought about this before. And that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. 
So clarity is stamped based on like the way you answered the question to me, Tom, it was amazing. So do you have any kids? No, we made a decision a long time ago. We don't want to have kids. The way you said it was like very nonchalant. <laughs> really? It was so like, yeah, that's what we did. Then I said, so tell me how you processed it. It's very obvious that was a very comfortable, certain decision with a lot of time put into it. Very few people do that. And then you got clarity and clarity gives confidence. So somebody looks at your eyes when you give the answer, there is no, you know, looking away or uncomfortable or anything. You're like, this is who we are. This is the decision we made. But that clarity came from all the conversations you and your wife had together. I don't think enough people do that together. Yeah, no question. One thing in your book that you talked about that I thought was really interesting was you asked the question, to your point about questions, when was the last time you thought about your identity? And you just brought that up. What's that process for people? How do you be, like, how, what is the identity, which I think most people give stats. Like, what do you mean by that? And how can people begin yeah. to shape their identity? So, uh, uh, Tom, who were you in high school? What was my identity? Yeah, so if I was a in comedian. high school with you, who were you? You a, were a comedian? A thousand percent. Okay, comedian. Yep. When did it change? Uh, as soon as I went to college. I consciously decided I wanted to become the artist, which was not necessarily the right decision, but that was, yeah, when I changed. And then what happened from artist to quest? Poverty. Got it. And so I, so I start, um, want to be the funny guy because I need attention in high school. Okay. I, by the end of high school, I'm very good at making people laugh in a sort of living room funny way. Mm -hmm. I do countless hours of practice of stand-up comedy. And when I go to college, I'm like, my only style of humor is self-deprecating. So I'm always making fun of myself, which actually makes me think a little bit less of myself. And so I very much had an inferiority complex in high school. I cheated my way to being in the top 10 of my graduating class. I did terribly on my SATs. And I come into film school and I'm like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Like, I actually want to be good at this. And that's one sort of realization I'm grateful for was I realized at some point you're in the big bad world and you're either good or you're not. Mm -hmm. And so you better stop cheating, really pay attention and get good. And so I thought I need to take myself more seriously, stop making fun of myself. So I didn't tell anybody that I was, you know, a, a comedic person or anything. I didn't make jokes, nothing. And so I began to adopt the identity of the artist. I have some artistic failures, which creates this identity crisis. I'm very much in the grips of poverty now because I've graduated. My parents aren't helping me anymore. I'm selling insurance door to door. Uh, so what year is this? What year this is, is this would have been 99. Wow. So 20 years ago. Yeah. So and and I'm just like in this. I'm sliding towards depression. I have no sense of how I can make things come true. This is all pre-internet. So like, there's just, there's no hope for me. Mm -hmm. Like there's, mm -hmm. I, the idea to make a $100,000 film, which back then there was no YouTube, there was no video cameras you could make movies on. I mean, it just wasn't a thing. So it was like $100,000 film might as well have been a $100 million film. So I'm stuck, what am I gonna do? And that's when I meet these two entrepreneurs who are like, look, you're coming to the world with your hand out. And if you want to control the art, you have to control the resources. And so that began a very long journey of identity for me, of figuring out who am I? How do I define myself now? And how is that useful? Wow. Like understanding that it is completely malleable. I can decide right now that I'm somebody else, that my identity is something new and something different. Like I remember the day I told people I was going to start lifting. And I just said, right now, today, I'm lifting. And I told people I'm going to put on muscle. I'm going to look like Hugh Jackman. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, right. And I just went beast mode and I just started working out all the time and I realized, whoa, like it's a demarcation line in the sand. Yesterday at this time, I did not have the sense that I'm going to become like Hugh Jackman, that I am a lifter. I am somebody who sticks through with what they say. And now today I'm just going to decide that is me. 
And so I began telling people it, which gave all this pressure that yes. I had to live up to it. And I began to realize like, whoa, this is a lever that you can pull and it drives behavior. That's amazing. I mean, that pretty much explains the whole thing about identity, right? So uh, I think the first identity we have is whatever identity we're trying to get attention for. I mean, you know, when, when you come out, you're saying your family, extremely obese, I think you said. Mm. So I don't know, was it a uh, mom and dad stayed together? Was it a healthy family? Was it loving? Was it, was it a crazy environment? Was it a lot of pressure? No, like it was pretty good, but my parents end up, so I, I have this recurring nightmare as a kid and I can't explain it. I'm in a loveless marriage. So imagine me at 14. I've never had a relationship, but I, I have this recurring nightmare about being in a loveless marriage. Not realizing, of course, my parents were in a loveless marriage mm. and I just didn't know. Wow. And so on some subconscious level, I was obviously picking up on that. Mad respect to my parents who stayed together until three weeks after I left for college and then they split. Get out of here. No, and I actually respect it like that. I wow. would never do that. I would never repay that because that's so crazy to me to live a life that's less than it could be for your kids, Just which for is why you. I don't have children. That, that makes sense um, So, But that they did that, I'm very grateful. Wow. Going back to the identity part, uh, you know, you had a moment that you had to make a decision and you asked some questions and you met a couple people that eventually inspired you to want to make change and then you went after what you wanted to do and that day when you said, I'm going to start looking like Hugh Jackman the next day and one day the decision not that serious, the next day, here's who I'm going to end up being. When I listen to your story, it's all why to and uh, we don't spend enough time with why to. Why to is linked to identity. How to is systems, learning, it's a skill, it's a skill set, anybody can pick that up. So identity is you asking the questions until eventually you get to a point that you get to the deeper part of who do you want to be? What life do you want to live? And why do you want to live this life? Why is it important to you? Why is it worth you putting through all these hours? Why would you want to do that? That transition when you go through it and then the pressure part when you said here's who I'm going to be where you declare your intentions to the world. This is what I'm going to be doing. A lot of times we keep things a secret. And so there's a debate. Some say you should never declare your intentions to the world because that pressure could create anxiety. You should never do it. You know, like Babe Ruth pointed a finger and I'm going to hit a home run. What if you don't hit it? What if you fail? You know, what if you say, Michael Jordan says, the Bulls never winning, losing game seven. You should never say that because there's too much pressure on the players. Or then the other side say, well, you should put the pressure on yourself because your teammates play better because it's not on them. It's on you. And the leader does that. To me... Um, I think declaring intention serves a purpose. I think when you go out there and you say, this is what I'm going to be doing, this is where I'm going to be at, you officially have the world holding you accountable. That pressure could be good pressure to put into your life. Uh, we, we, we hear the phrase peer pressure and we always get the negative connotation with peer pressure. Right? It's like, hey, uh, don't do drugs because of peer pressure. You know, Say no to drugs, peer pressure. Go to school, peer pressure, peer pressure. Where, I mean, it all depends who the peer is that's giving you pressure. Because if you got the right peer giving you the right kind of pressure, you can do some big things in your life. Mm -hmm. So I think that additional kind of peer pressure you put into yourself, you're in the right circles, right environments, those two guys that, you know, put some kind of a peer pressure or direction into you, can really be a spark to change someone's life. Where all of a sudden the identity goes from being a regular person to the next day, no one recognizes mm -hmm. them. In the wor world of social media of influencers, there's some that'll say things like, listen, you have a lot of time. Take your time. You're okay. You're going to be all right. You're going to be fine. You have a lot of time. And that's fine. That can work for some audiences. And sometimes you wonder if it's almost like a strategy so other people don't catch up to you because they think they're <laughs> like, honestly, you sit there and say, is this guy really that dark that he's trying to get everybody else to slow down so he kind of, you know, works his ass up. Well, hey, everybody else, you slow down. It's okay. Where for me on the other side is, 
Listen, this never lies. This lies. When I look at my hand this way, I'm 25 years old. When I look at my hand this way, I'm 40 years old. <laughs> we look at our hands too often this way. I like to look at my hands like this. This doesn't lie. This is a 40-year-old wrinkles. This is 40, okay? I can't lie about that. That's 40 years old. Now, I can look at this and say, no, I'm a lot young. I got a lot of time. We don't. So, for me, I would sit there. One of my biggest drivers was, you're at your dad's funeral. This, this sounds crazy to some people, but I have visualized. It's going to be the first time my dad's ever going to hear this because I've never said this to him because, you know, I just don't want to tell him this kind of stuff because I don't want him to think about it. Like, I don't want him to say, hey, can't believe you said this. I have visualized my dad's funeral 50,000 times. And when I visualize, I'm like, okay, you're speaking. What are you saying? You know, you're the closing speaker. What are you going to say? You okay with it? Are you okay with who's going to be there? You know, are you okay if he dies at this age? Your kids never met him. They don't have a relationship with grandpa like you don't. For you, it matters. Because of Bet David last name, you're the only person I can continue this Bet David last name. All the other guys didn't have kids. You have to continue this generation. There's a legacy. A Syrian community is a small community. We're endangered species. It's not like there's millions of us. It's a very small community of Assyria. We lost our country. So I go there and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's not how it's going to be. Here's how it's going to be. He's going to live this. This is what's going to take place. So when that day comes, I'm not going to have any regrets because I'm going to be good. That visualization of going there creates so much urgency for me that makes me move. Too often, this whole gift that we have, like we're not putting that gift of imagination and visualization in place. And so either we waste it and we just go into la-la land. Oh my gosh, what if I have a big house? What if my you know, zip code is Beverly Hills? What if I have this big house? And what if I could put the big parties? What if I date these hot girls? What if I date the best looking guy? What if I have this? What if I have that? That's fine, but that's not deep enough. You got to go really deep, really deep with purpose and really deep with if you don't move, what could take place? So again, going back to it for me is for people to sit there and realize if you really want to move yourself, Ask the questions, go deeper on what life could happen, both good and bad. Don't just say, oh, all good or all bad. Tap into both of them, and hopefully that creates urgency for you to start taking the next necessary steps to grow your business. But uh, the gift of imagination and visualization is rarely used properly. It's interesting that you say that. So the 19-year-old version of myself has actually asked, um, what's your ideal woman? And I described her just like you were talking about height. Um, I said she's going to um, speak a foreign language, but she needs to speak English perfectly to get my humor. Um, she, <laughs> but I find accents so sexy, and I think it's so cool when somebody can speak a second language, which was always a fantasy of mine. I said she'll be short. She'll either be able to draw or sing. Um, and she's going to be like ethnic somehow because growing up in Tacoma, dude, it was white people 24 seven. And so it was like just finding somebody that was like a little bit different was very intoxicating. So of course I end up marrying a Greek girl, but she grew up in England. So she speaks Greek, but English perfectly and she can draw. She's a world-class artist. So I was like, wow, this is so crazy. When you really have clarity about what you want and it comes across your path and you're paying attention. Then it's like all of a sudden, hey, I'm gravitating towards this. This is you know, something that's interesting to me. But one thing that I think really became powerful for Lisa and I is something that you talk a lot about, which is you've got to shut out the noise of what other people think and you've got to be willing to really be yourself, know what you're thinking about 
Um, why is that powerful? Why do we need to, excluding some of the right people, why do we need to stop caring about what other people think? Because uh, uh, life goes by wasted when you do that. You know, I remember when my parents got a divorce. Um, so my mother's side, they're Armenian, and my dad's side, they're Assyrian. Okay, so if I go to the Armenian side and I would hang out with them, they were on their way to getting a divorce. The Armenian side would say, he's a bad David, he's a Syrian. And they would pin me against them. And if I went on the Assyrian side, they would say, oh, he's Armenian. Look at him. He's Bad Armani, which Bad Armani means uh, a, 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 a terrible Armenian is what it meant. I mean, these things that they had, Armenians and Assyrians, they have a big debate on who's the first Christian, Armenians or Assyrians. Why was that uh, an important uh, uh, situation for me as a kid? Because everybody indirectly will impose their belief system into you. And it's never going to stop. You know this whole thing about people say, oh my gosh, I can't wait to win to shut up all my haters. Reality check. It ain't never happening. Okay? It ain't never happening. Because every time you come up, it's just more of them. Right? And they're always, the great thing about haters is I always talk about the fact that my best consultants are my haters. Best. Because it it's almost makes no sense to be a hater. Let me explain to you why. Because haters highlight your weaknesses. And if you're smart, you're like, he makes a good point. I do have bad calves. I better start working on my calves. Thank you for that feedback. Now I kick your ass because you pointed out my weakness. What a great consultant. We don't need a consulting firm. We just need to hire new haters. Looking for haters, right? Come on, more haters. Please send me some more hate so I can see my flaws, my weaknesses. But the whole idea about that is, hey, one day I'm going to make so much money. I'm going to shut everybody up. That doesn't work. First of all, that's not going to take place. Uh, the more you move up, the most hated man in the world today is the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. And prior to him, the most hated man in the world was the President of the United States prior to him, which was Barack Obama. One's a Democrat, one's a Republican. It's irrelevant. That's, that part's not going away. So the voice is never going to be less. So you have a choice. Either you can say, I don't want to deal with the voice, live a small life, no problem, it's okay, as long as you're happy with it, you're content, you're aligned with your values and principles, more power to you. But if you can't live a small life and you have to live a big life, you have to understand that it's going to be pushed. And you have to figure out a way to silence everybody. Every time somebody gets married for the first time, and uh, if they ask the question, I never impose, but if they ask the question, I say, so what feedback would you give us that we're just getting married? First of all, everyone's going to tell you when you guys are going to have kids. It's number one. When are you going to get pregnant? I said, my suggestion to you is tell everybody up front you don't have any plans of having kids for 10 years. Okay? But if you do, you do. But if you tell them you're going to have kids, everyone's going to tell you what? How come you're not pregnant yet? Does this thing not work? Does your thing not work? What is going on? I bet she's sick. I always knew she had that limp. Maybe it's because <laughs> of the way he walks. I, it's the lisp. I knew what was going to happen with his family. And then you're overthinking, right? Shut everybody up right up front. Tell everybody to manage expectation. Anticipation is game. Day before I got married, I sat my uh, parents down. They hadn't been in the same room for 20 years. 20 years they hadn't been in the same room. And if they were in the same room together, a, uh, a German would have been resurrected to start World War III. I mean, they could not be in the same room together. But I, I brought them to my house. They said, oh, we're coming to your wedding. I said, no, you're not. Of course we're coming to your wedding. I said, who told you to come to your wedding? Did I send you an invitation? I didn't send you an invite. You are invited to my house, both of you together. We're not coming to your house. Oh, you're not coming to the wedding. <laughs> so I said, what is wrong with you? You're, we're your parents. So I said, listen, I'm just telling you, it's very simple. You come to my house, that is your ticket to the wedding. Because you are not going to create this escapade at my wedding the first time you see each other after 20 years, Iran, all this other stuff. So they came to my house, and they sat down. 
It was so uncomfortable. It was entertaining. I wish I would have recorded this setting, right? So they're sitting, I'm looking at him. I can't take the smile off my face because I'm having too much fun with this. So I say, hey, uh, mom, dad, I'm going to step out. You guys got to talk. And you guys got to hash it out because you guys can't have any politics at the wedding. So I step out. I am literally out for 20 seconds. They tell me, we're ready. We're ready. Come back. And so I come back and I said, what happened? We're good. I said, no problems. No. I said, okay. You guys are invited. Here's the invitation. Here's the invitation. They came to the wedding. But I told my mom that they said, mom, you have to realize in a Middle Eastern culture, a lot of times um, moms are put, number one, before wives. I want you to know the day I get married, the following day you go from number one to number two. And it's very simple. And I don't want to hear about it. She is my number one. You are my number two. I love you, but you're not number one. She's number, you're, you're number two. It's very hard for her, but it was clear. So you can't come in between me and my wife. If me and my wife are going to argue, we're going to argue. It's none of your business. This is our business. We're fighting. We didn't ask you for your advice. We're fighting. Leave us alone. We have our own issues we have to deal with. But we don't say those things, so everybody creates noise. So the more you tell the world how to manage expectations dealing with you and what to anticipate, you actually minimize a lot of the noise. And most of the noise that's the most irritating are from the people closest to you, not strangers. Because who cares what a stranger says about you? You care what your family says about you. And that can be controlled if you do it properly. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, the world will treat you exactly the way you let them treat you, which I think is super powerful. And as you were talking, I was like, it's so important to do, to lay down the ground rules, to tell people like what's okay, what's not okay. And so many people are terrified to do that. They're afraid to upset their mom. Um, I had a similar conversation with my mom. Um, what I find interesting is your concept of, of family values, and it's not what people think. And walk us through, or traditions, excuse me, family traditions. Walk us through this notion of family traditions and how people just take that stuff on without ever questioning it. Yeah, you have to question everything. First of all, it's not just family traditions for me. You gotta question everything. You gotta question if you grew up a Republican, are you a Republican and why? If you grew up in a family where everybody was a military, you know, general, army, whatever, and because of that you're a Republican, why are you? If you're a Democrat, why are you a Democrat? Because what, because you're Latino? Because you're black? Because you're Middle Eastern? You're, you're Republican because, oh, are you a Christian for what? Are you a Christian because you're a Christian? Because your parents are Christians. Mm. Are you an atheist because of you or your parents? Are you a Scientologist because of you or your parents? What are your belief system, right? What are you doing? And do you subscribe to the same mindset? Do you subscribe to the same mindset of what rich people are? You know, I grew up in a family where my mother didn't like rich people. So for me, it was kind of like rich people are terrible people. They're greedy. All they care about is money. I can't stand rich people. They're selfish. They put everybody else to work and they live in these big homes and they do nothing and they party and they go to the nice restaurants and buy $1,000 bottle of wine and I'm freaking having a $2 beer here. Screw these rich people, right? I can't stand these rich people. He drinks a Bordeaux and I'm drinking a Budweiser. That cold-hearted rich guy, right? And so to me it was that. So I was coming up, I'm like, you know, these rich people are greedy. Then I started questioning everything every single thing and when i started questioning everything my philosophies in life became clear you see for me one of the reasons why i like uh, a book by marcus aurelius meditations or why i like ray dalio's book uh, uh principles is because it's here's my principles here's my values and a lot of times we don't take the time to say what are the values and principles that i'm willing to build my life on what are they and what really are they what what are, what are you willing to really stand up for you know, what is your core belief system? 
You know, are you a certain belief because you live in a certain city and you have to be? Are you thinking about money in a way because your parents looked at money that way? Maybe your parents don't like money because they didn't want to work for money. Maybe they're out and, you know, their escape was they had a nephew or a niece or a brother or a sibling or somebody that did better than them. So for them to prove to you that they still did their part, right, is to belittle that person. Listen, our parents are still human beings. You know, we look at parents as they know everything. They're the almighty. Parents make mistakes. Parents don't have everything figured out. They're trying to figure it out for themselves. So I think the solution for you to become free is you got to question every single thing, even the one that is so core to you that you're kind of like, you want me to even question this? Yes, all of it. Here's why. Because here's what happens. The idea isn't to question and change. Like the idea isn't to say, I question it and they're wrong, so I change everything. No. If you question it, your argument and belief system in that value or principle could actually go a layer deeper than you currently are. And if it goes a layer deeper than you currently are, then it becomes a conviction. And you give me anybody that leads an army, give me anybody that leads a country, give me anybody that does anything that impacts the world, their convictions are at a higher level than yours. Everybody has convictions that they live with. Ed Catmull, president of Pixar, right? Pixar, that guy's for God's sake, I mean, Pixar. And he said to me, <clears throat> the, the early versions of our movies, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but are all crap. And he talked about a few of my favorite movies. He said, oh yeah, they're all crap. We have to just toss them out and, and start over. And I said, wait a second. I backtracked and I said, so you just mean the, the movies when they start are really rough drafts and then you have to refine them. He's like, no, 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 that's the misconception. They think the early version of the movie is just a rough draft right. of the later one. He's like, no, it's completely different. Like we literally scrapped it and started wow. again from scratch. And then those starting from scratch wow. stories became some of their most popular, successful movies. Wow. Uh, so. Do you it. find that a lot? Because when I write, I, I will often hit that point where I'm like, this is so bad that trying to just continue to make it better is the wrong idea. I need to start over. And then if you can put words to this next emotion, you will be my hero, where so you get into this dark place, right? The writing is not going anywhere. You're not able to get it out. Like for whatever reason, that concept that you can feel in your mind, yeah. you can't articulate and get it on paper. And then you get this moment, for me a lot of times, I just get angry enough that that, that then becomes that like energy that I need. And you talk about you know, putting one song on repeat. There's, I've used this song a lot is the song Faint by Linkin Park, yeah. which is hyper aggressive. Yeah. And I'll put that on over and over and over to like keep that like energy. Because if I get angry enough at my shit writing, mm -hmm. I get this breakthrough moment where I can start from scratch and all of a sudden everything is, I can feel my brain speed up. Mm -hmm. And then I can write. But it took like that however much time of getting yeah. fed up. If you can put words around that moment. Uh, I, I, well, I'll, I'll put a phrase to that moment. Perfect. Uh, what makes you angry was one of the key pieces of advice that I was given by a writer named Poe Bronson. When I asked him, what do you do when you have writer's block? He said, what makes you angry? Or just write that. And that was also the advice that I was given by Whitney Cummings uh, and a few other stand-up comedians. How do you develop material? What makes you angry? Write about that. So I think anger, as opposed to just labeling it a bad thing, can be very useful fuel. So what makes you angry? And let's just say you're writing about something that doesn't require or seem to require anger. Well, if, you're, if you can't get started, it doesn't matter. So write about something else. <laughs> write about what makes you angry. 
And either you'll be able to, to sort of parry that into this other subject once you get going, or you'll end up writing something completely different and it'll end up better in the first place. What does it mean to copyright your faults? Ah, yeah, this is a great one. So copyright your faults, this is from Dan Carlin. So Dan Carlin is the host of my favorite podcast. It's just incredible, hardcore history. Yes. And anyone who hasn't heard it should start with Wrath of the Cons. If, uh, if you have to buy it, buy it, trust me. But copywriting your faults. Dan was a radio guy before he was a podcast guy. And he was constantly getting criticized because he would, he would, he would go into the red. He would, he would shout and he was really loud and he'd go up and he'd peek and drive all the audio people crazy. And then he'd get really low and whisper and they're just like, dude, come on, you're killing me here. Making my job really hard. And uh, his supervisor, supervisors at the time, they're like, look, kid, I, what people want is this like deep dignified baritone voice for the radio. I don't have a voice for radio, so I can't do it. Uh, but so this is the guy with 100 million downloads, by the way. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Your voice so, is terrible, Tim. I've been meaning to tell you. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. It's time to do the reveal now. Right. Uh, but the, that's a whole separate story, the accidental podcast. But later on, he had such a distinctive voice that people started complimenting him. And he's like, okay. So now this, this so-called weakness that he was unable to fix, so he didn't fix it. Uh, not only that, but he, he avoided fixing it by having the intro guys. The guys would be like, please welcome, or please enjoy, blah, 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 Dan Carlin. And he'd say, he shouts, he whispers, or something like that. He had the intro guy do a caveat so that he didn't have to change wow. his personal style, which later then became this huge asset. And his term is copyright your fault. He's like, now if someone imitates me, he's like, that's my jam. He's like, that's my shtick. Copyright your faults. And of course there are weaknesses you should address, but then there are flaws that can be converted into strengths. Uh, so I think that's, that's another way to catalyze creativity or just creating anything, is to realize that some of your biggest flaws may in fact be assets. Right. And so that could be a question you ask, right? how might some of my biggest weaknesses be strengths or assets? I think that's a very useful question to journal on, and which I, which I tend to do just about every morning, is freehand journaling in what are called morning pages. But uh, which, okay, we're talking about creativity. Morning pages, we should talk about. Julia uh, Cameron describes them as spiritual windshield wipers. And <laughs> the way I would translate that is, when you do morning pages, and, and you might just be complaining, like your lesser self, your worst self coming out on pages, just bitching and moaning, is you get that out of your system for the day. So you don't have it ricocheting around your head like a stray bullet for the rest of your waking hours, interrupting everything else. You just trap it, you freeze it on paper. And that practice has been tremendously liberating. Not only from a, a well-being standpoint, but from just freeing up my CPU so that I can focus on things that are more important. Because if I have all that, like, God, that guy, and the dad, and the dad, like, I should have said, bah, like, all that bouncing around all day, it's like you have antivirus software just slowing down <laughs> your, why is this so slow? It's like, yeah, because you're thinking about these stupid grudges that you're holding against people for trivial bullshit. Like, who cares if the guy at Starbucks bought the last thing of cashews, you idiot? Like, <laughs> Ferris. Deeply troubled. Yeah, like, Ferris pulled together. So, if I get it on paper, though, I'm like, okay, I've, like, I've dealt with right. that. 
Now, in the book, you encourage people to bounce around. What's one thing that you hope nobody skips? So the book's broken into three sections. You have healthy, wealthy, and wise, which is a nod to Ben Franklin. I mean, they're all interdependent, right? Because they're, they're sort of the, the three legs of the stool, mm-hmm. healthy, wealthy, and wise. So I, think, I do think you need all three. So Derek Sivers is this like programmer monk, philosopher king, startup <laughs> entrepreneur who started CD Baby, which was the largest marketplace for independent musicians at the time. Sold it for, I think, $24 million. But he and Seth Godin, I think, are two examples of people who are very good at genuinely, in real life, following contrarian rules that work exceptionally well. Mm. Uh, so Derek uh, has, has a couple of one-liners that I think are really fantastic. Um, <laughs> so I'll give you a few. One is... If more information were the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six-pack abs. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. right? And just, just, just absorbing, not even absorbing, just reading and watching and listening to more isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Like you have to apply it. You have to use incentives. You have to have rewards and punishments set for yourself so you actually get things done, timelines, et cetera. So that's, that's one. Another one is uh, don't be a donkey. And that... So he, he says that to himself all the time, like, don't be a donkey, don't be a donkey. And the reason is, there's a, I want to say, it might be a philosopher's paradox, but I don't think it is. I think it's just a parable about Buridan's ass. So Buridan's ass, about a donkey. Yeah. Uh, my favorite porn. No, that's not it. It's about a donkey. <gasps> Sorry. Too much caffeine. So uh, it's about a donkey who ha- is thirsty and hungry. And there's water on one side, a few feet away, and hay on the other. And he can't decide whether to do the hay first, the hay first, or the water. The hay or the water. And he dies of thirst at the end of it. He couldn't do them sequentially. Right. So this is, this is Derek's recommendation to his younger self, and really to any 20 or 30-something, but it applies to everybody, which is, in effect, you, you can do almost everything you want in life, but you can't do it at the same time. And if you can just dedicate yourself to one thing for even a year, and then the next thing for a year, you can do those 10 things. But if you try to do all 10 at once, you're going to be burdened's ass. You're going to be like, should I do this? Should I do this? Or should I focus on this? Should I focus on this? So don't be a donkey. Uh, The other one that for me was so helpful to hear is, I think he calls it, it's like 95 versus 100%. And he tells the story of moving to around Santa Monica and his friends getting him into biking on the bike path. So up and down the boardwalk right on the water. Mm. And so being a type A personalities, uh, type A personality, he would get a stopwatch, he'd start it, and he'd like huff and puff and race as hard as he could all the way down to wherever. And he would time himself. And every day, no matter how hard he did it, 43 minutes. 43 minutes. Just wouldn't improve. 43 minutes. And this thing that should have been enjoyable became painful in his mind. He started to avoid it. He'd be like, ah, I have other things to do. No, instead of bike riding, I'll do this other thing. And uh, he realized at one point, this is really pathetic. And this is really bad that something that should be enjoyable, I am avoiding because I've made it so painful. He said, why don't I just go for a bike ride and enjoy it? So he goes for a bike ride and it's just a leisurely cruise. He's chilling. He's riding around, 
and uh, he's, he's seeing dolphins in the water. He's standing up. He's looking around, noticing things he hadn't noticed before. At one point, <laughs> this is Derek. He goes, at one point, I looked up in the sky, and there was a pelican. And I said, wow, a pelican. And it shit in my mouth. <laughs> and I was like, ah. He's like, it was the best bike ride ever. I was like, okay. So he's having a great time. Uh, pelican shit in the mouth notwithstanding. And he gets back, and he looks at his watch, and it was, I think it was 45 minutes. And he's like, wait, what? He's like, so all that huffing and puffing, all that like sweating, like leg cramps and pain was for an extra two minutes off the clock. That's outrageous. So he started applying that to his entire life. He's like, when it starts to get, now look, there are exceptions to all of this, right? But he said, when I start to get really stressed out, I just stop because I realize like, 95% is enough for getting almost all of the results that I want and making it sustainable. And uh, this comes back to the creativity, right? It's like if you always try to crank 100%, you're like, I need to get 2,000 awesome words out today. That's like trying to hit 43 minutes every time and huffing and puffing. Right. And you're going to start putting things off. Oh, I need another cup of coffee. Oh, my God, my shoes are so dirty. I need to fix my shoes before I can go out Possibly and write. let that stand. And you'll do anything to put it off because right. it becomes this intimidating task. So yeah, sort of the, the 95 versus 100% is, is another one. Oh, I've got another one. I have to share. So this, this, is, this is one of my favorites. So Sean White, uh, two things that are very interesting about Sean White. Well, there, there are a lot of things, but he's, he holds the all-time record for medals at the X Games. He has, I think, two gold medals at the Olympics. And uh, two things worth noting for him, and this comes back to the high expectations thing. Okay, so... I asked him, what is your self-talk when you come out of the gate for a gold medal run at the Olympics? What do you say to yourself? And he thought about it, and uh, the short version is, who cares? <laughs> short version is, who cares? You know, this, I think this is a really big deal, snowboarding, going down snow on this contraption. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to go home. I'll see my family, uh, which he borrowed from Agassi. When Agassi sort of had his comeback Mm. Uh, that was how he took the pressure off in very, very high-pressure situations, was to say, who cares? Which is effective when you put in the training. If you put in the training, you don't need to stress in that last minute. The other thing I took away from Sean is when he has a really serious goal, like a gold medal at Sochi or whatever it might be, he also has a completely absurd goal to offset how stress-inducing that can be. Hmm. So at one point it was, I want to wear American flag pants on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. <laughs> like that was the other goal. Uh, he had, has some ludicrous goal to offset the serious Wow, stuff. that's cool. So I've, I've started to try to incorporate that in my life. I have a really what's serious an absurd goal. goal that you have right now? Uh, okay, so this is, this, is, this is an exclusive. This is breaking news. Here we go. Uh, and... Um, We'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm a little hesitant, hesitant to even, even share this, but I'll give, it, I'll give a teaser. I'll give a teaser, right. which is sufficient. Uh, so, goal, you know, I want this book to be everywhere. I want, I mean, I want everyone to read this. It's uh, like a friend of mine said, you know, I, I've bought four-hour work week for a few people who really need it for uh, changing chapters in their lives or starting a company. I've given four-hour body to people who want to lose weight. He's like, this one I would give to everybody. So like, my, I have very big goals for this. So I have, I have some other plans, which I can't go into huge detail with right now, but to create a fragrance for men. Really? And uh, I mean, fucking look at me. I'm from Long Island. <laughs> this is like a tuxedo for me. 
don't really wear cologne or anything. Occasionally smell like I've been chased by hyenas or something if I'm sweating a lot. <laughs> but I was like, how funny would it be if I came out with like a Tim Ferriss fragrance? Oh my God. That how amazing. hilarious would that be? So, uh, What would Tim Ferriss smell like? Oh, so that, that I can't disclose. Oh, but no. I do. I do. Oaky? Like, <laughs> Oaky. <Okay>. Like tequila. <laughs> I think it'd be like like a rough night. It'd be nice. like tequila that be the name. Yeah, tequila and pine needles. It's like, what happened? Yeah, that's Tim that's, Ferriss. <laughs> a rough night. Yeah, that's right. And it'd be like a rough night by Tim Ferriss. You know, like I want to have like the yes, cheesiest please. like advertisements. You know, like the the, the unbuttoned yes. dress shirt with like the fancy watch. Looking like blue steel. I just want to make it as ludicrous as possible. But it will actually be, if I, I, I'm talking to some of the best of the best people in that world right now. Wow. So it's like, it's like one part complete spinal tap. And then one part like serious, I actually want to make something cool. But that to me is just a, a psychological release valve. Mm. So that when I'm getting really wound up about this for whatever reason... I can think about that. It just makes me laugh my ass off. <laughs> then I have a, two glasses of wine and I chill out. So th- always pairing like one serious with one absurd goal, I think is, is really brilliant. It's so smart. And I've been, I've been doing that since he first told me about it. And it's, it's really improved the quality of my life and my results. Uh, because I also don't feel like I have all my eggs in one basket. Right? I'm diversifying my identity in a way which I think is very important. Uh, so, <laughs> All right, last question. What is the impact that you want to have on the world? The impact that I want to have on the world right now would be creating a benevolent army of super learners who test the impossibles and teach other people to do the same. That's it. So whether it's 100,000, a million, people who've mastered meta-learning, acquiring skills who are also willing to test the impossibles, test the assumptions, and have the uncomfortable conversations that I think this country is largely dodging, Mm. ooh, that gets me all excited. And if they're able to then impart that to more people, my goal is to make me obsolete as quickly as possible, right? It's like, I think the goal of any really good personal trainer should be to make themselves obsolete and unnecessary as quickly as possible. So that's... That's my goal. 